0: Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we praise you this morning for the care that you give to your creation. Your wisdom and power and strength are unmatched. There is no one else like you, for nothing surprises you or causes you to worry. Your goodness to us and to your creation knows no boundaries. Even now, we as your people live our lives with so many questions and so few answers. But you have no questions, and you know all the answers. Lord, cause us to ponder you more deeply, that we can look at you, the eternal, sovereign creator, as our Lord and Savior. Give us eyes to see us and ourselves for who we really are, and give us eyes to see you for who you really are. Not as we desire you to be, or or as we previously thought you to be, but for for what you tell us who you are. May we desire to know you more and more deeply. Father God, we thank you for all of the good things that you have given to us. For you are generous to us, and it is your generosity that sustains us. Lord, we are grateful that no matter what takes place in our lives, you have given us yourself. Through all we encounter, you remain faithful and true, and for that we can be truly grateful. We are especially grateful this morning, Lord, for the safe birth of Jackson Brooks. We thank you for, for that both Tori and the baby are healthy. Lord, we pray for the Brooks family that each of them would continue to grow in a knowledge of you. And Lord, we pray that Jackson would grow uh, up in you as well, and that there would be, never be a day that he did not remember not knowing you. And as we come to the preaching of your word, we pray that our hearts would be open to knowing you in ways that are new and fresh, and may we be equipped for the life ahead. Amen. All right, this morning we have a special guest bringing us the word. Uh, Todd Miles is here visiting with us this morning. Todd teaches systematic theology at Western Seminary and is also an elder at Hinson Baptist. Uh, he has meant a lot to both Hans and I in the academic world, um, as well as pastorally. Todd is the author of books, including Superheroes Can't Save You and Cannabis and the Christian, right? That's the, your most famous one, right? Yeah. Uh, as a professor and, and a churchman, he has meant a great deal to this church. Uh, A little bit more personal info about him. He and his wife, Camille, have six children and two grandchildren. Is that right? Yeah? Uh, In addition to being my professor and an elder at a previous church, his family is very dear to us. Our kids studied together, played sports together, uh, and some of our greatest life lessons have come with Todd and Camille by our side, and for that, we are grateful. And so it's a Mm. joy to have you here with us this morning. Thanks.
1: Yeah. Good. (laughs) Yeah, sit down, please. (laughs) Um, uh, If you open your Bibles to Psalm 44, open your Bibles to Psalm 44. While you're turning there, let me give you greetings from Western Seminary, uh, where I teach, and and Hinson Church, where I am a member, and, and I think they will be praying for us right about now, I think, which is good. And also, while you're turning, I want to say thank you too, because my son Levi came here while he was a student at Corbin. And thank you for caring for him and taking care of him. And maybe he came and sat in the back, and none of you ever even saw him. I'm not sure. But he speaks very fondly of this church. And so I'm really grateful for that. Um, yeah. And he has grand, for me, grandchild number three on the way. His his. Uh, yeah, in, in October, he and Annie. Anyway, okay, Psalm 44, Psalm 44. Uh, I normally read out of the CSB, which has super giant font print, so I don't need to put reading glasses on for this. Um, Psalm 44, uh, let me get this a little closer. This is a, a Psalm of David, um, David, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Would you pray with me again briefly. Father, we ask now that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, wh- one, one more thing about me uh, that wasn't said was that I went to Oregon State University, and so I like all things Oregon State, uh, which means I'm a college baseball fan because well, that's about all we've got if you're a Beaver fan. <laughs> um, but I like baseball anyway. I especially like college baseball. I love the College Baseball World Series and, and, and the whole tournament. Uh, and, and this year, there was one school, uh, not Oregon State, uh, not Oregon, I would tell you if it was Oregon also, that was the most obnoxious sports team that I have ever seen in my life at any level. They were arrogant and proud, and profane, and they treated the, the umpires and the opponents with complete disdain. And if you were into college baseball at all, all across the nation, you were either rabidly for this school, probably because you graduated from there, or you were very much against them. Very much against them, but they were very good, and they dominated all season long until it came to the super regionals, where they were defeated by Notre Dame, <laughs> of all places. Yeah, um, never been such a Notre Dame fan in my life. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 when they got beat, when they got beat, the the like baseball Twitter world was just aflame with, what what. Goes around, comes around, or hashtag karma, hashtag karma, and and really, I, I thought I had no idea that so many college baseball fans were Buddhist. I, who, who, who would have thought? Um, because it, because that's because karma, of course, is a Buddhist and, and Hindu theological construct. And, and yet, we, we, like non-Buddhist people, um, I'm trusting as I speak to you here, uh, that um, we, we use that term sometimes, don't we? We use that term, and, and certainly people outside the, the world do. And, and it's just a way of saying, basically, we want the world to make sense. We want the world to make sense. And we want it to make sense in this way. If people do bad things, we want bad things to happen to them. As long as it's not us. And if, but if people do good things, especially if it's us, we want good things to happen to those people. And it sounds like superstition. Uh, or other things we might say is, well, the universe won't let you get away with that. right? Or karma will get you in the end. And of course, the universe is not Personal. It exercises no agency at all, let alone sovereign control. And and karma, as I said, is a Buddhist and Hindu doctrine that is grounded in a false view of the nature of God and of reality. So the overwhelming majority of people who say such things, they don't really believe that the universe is personally keeping score. They don't have Buddhist or Hindu convictions. What they're really saying is that I wish the world made sense. I wish the world made sense. Or it it, it ought to, right? If there's any justice at all, what what goes around ought to come around. And, And they hope that it will, at least when it benefits them. Now, from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, I think we would affirm such things, but we would do so because we believe that there is a perfect holy God who is completely sovereign. That is, he has created the physical universe and the moral universe in a manner that is consistent with himself, especially when it comes to the moral universe. That is, he governs it in a manner that is consistent with his holy and righteous character. And we we also know that God has made the world to where there is some measure of cause and effect. The book of Proverbs makes that very clear. If you walk in wisdom and you walk in the fear of the Lord, then, generally speaking, good things happen to you. But if you act foolishly, if you do not fear the Lord, then bad things will happen to you not because the universe is personal, but because God is personal, right? We know from the book of Proverbs that cheaters never prosper, usually, (laughs) And, and, and the wicked will be judged one day, one day. But I said, Usually, and one day, what, what happens when things don't appear to function in that cause-and-effect manner that makes sense of the world? What do we do when cheaters do win, when the dishonest do prevail, when the wicked prosper? What do we do when the honest are taken advantage of, when integrity is maligned, When the righteous suffer, more to the point, what do you do when you suffer? What do you do when your suffering feels so great that it seems out of step with how things ought to be? Now, if you've ever thought that, then you're asking a well-worn, well-traveled question. These are, these are the kind of questions that have perplexed people, I don't know, ever since like shortly after Genesis 3. The, the, the Bible is full of people asking questions like, how long, O Lord, or why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? So this morning, if you're here or, or, or you're listening, maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian as we look at Psalm 44, I would invite you to consider your life in light of this moral universe that we've kind of talked about. Do you think that what you have received is what you have coming to you? Or or do you feel like, no, maybe, maybe not. I, I, I think I've, that, that I haven't received what I have coming to me. Well, I'd like you to consider this question, what reason do you have for feeling that something else ought to have happened to you or been given to you? What, what reason do you have? And, and, and are there perhaps answers in Psalm 44? For, for the rest of us Christians, I, I would invite you to consider the words of this psalm in light of your own personal circumstances. Are, are, are you right now, or do you know someone who is going through suffering that is It's just inexplicable to you, and the dissonance between what is happening to you on the one hand and and what you feel ought to happen to you in light of God's promises, on the other hand, it's left you confused, maybe, or, or maybe even discouraged. Well, if so, then this psalm is for you. This psalm is for you. Okay, before we jump into it, I want to give you some historical context that will help us in this. This is, first off, it's a psalm of lament coupled with the plea for deliverance. But to understand the frustration that the psalmist feels here, we, we need to understand the covenantal context. Now, what do I mean by that? At the time of the writing of this psalm written in Israel, Israel was under the Mosaic Covenant, The Mosaic Covenant, established at Mount Sinai around, I don't know, 1400 BC or so, it was a very specific covenant that prescribed certain rewards and certain punishments for particular behaviors. It was very much a case of, Israel, if you do this, then I, the Lord, will respond in this way to you. But if you don't do this, then I will respond this way to you. If if you were to look, and I don't want you to necessarily right now, but you might scribble down Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. I think it's one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible for understanding the Old Testament. In it, well, prior to that, Moses has delivered the law again to this new generation of Israelites who are about to go into the promised land. And in chapter 28, he sets forward 14 verses of promises of blessing for obedience followed by 54 verses promising cursing for disobedience. And it's gory in detail. And, and 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 if you read it, if you read it, you'll—it's you, like you're looking at well, this is exactly what happened to Israel. It just—it makes perfect sense of everything down to the, as I said, the goriest detail. Um, from, well, it, it ends with the mother of all curses, exile. That's how Deuteronomy 28 ends. Um, the blessings for obedience are holistic, fruitful crops, lots of animals, health. Peace from enemies. The curses for disobedience, though, they are just as holistic, touching on every aspect of life, famine, death, disease, destruction. In other words, for Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant Israel, the moral universe would make sense. You got out what you put in. If you wanted to be blessed, then you obeyed. If you wanted to be cursed, then you disobeyed. That was the essence of the behaviors required in the covenant. Good behavior resulted in reward, bad in cursing. And then of course, that's the covenantal context for most of the Old Testament. The book of Proverbs functions under the Mosaic Covenant and you'll see all the different rewards that come for wisdom. they're they're right out of Deuteronomy 28. And a lot of the curses that come for walking foolishly, those come right out of Deuteronomy 28 as well. The world makes sense. That's the way the universe is supposed to work. That's the way it worked for Israel, unless, of course, it doesn't work that way. Consider, for example, the book of Job. The bad things that happened to Job had nothing to do with any unfaithfulness or unrighteous behavior on his part at all. In fact, he went through tribulation precisely because he was faithful. And I remember Job's friends telling him, no, you must have sinned. No, you must have sinned. Because this is how the world works. And, 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 and basically they were, well, it was ahead of time, but they were essentially quoting the book of Proverbs at Job. And Job's like, no, I haven't. I haven't been faithless. And said, Oh, you must have. Because the world works in a very mechanistic way. God works in a very mechanistic way. And Job was like, no, I haven't done that. And of course, we know, because we've read the first couple chapters of Job, we know that Job was actually right, and Job's friends were not. Job wasn't suffering because he was faithless, he was actually suffering because he was faithful. Amen. Amen. Well, One of the lessons of Job is that life doesn't always make sense. And in our psalm today, we'll get there. <laughs> in our psalm today, life was not making sense to the people of God. They were going through trials even though they had remained faithful. Psalm 44 records their divinely inspired response so here's the big idea of the of psalm 44 for us as christians christians will suffer we will suffer i could just stop right there it'd be kind of a bummer wouldn't it Um, christians will suffer and god is sovereign over all of it and god is sovereign over all of it Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read through the psalm and I'm going to tell you what it meant back then and what it means for us. And we'll do this paragraph by paragraph or stanza by stanza. Look at verses one through three. The main point of this is that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. But them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. That is Israel. Salvation is of the Lord. That's what's being confessed here. Uh, The people of God in this psalm, they had heard all that the Lord had done to bless them in the past. They inherited the land, and they knew they had inherited land because they were in the land. They knew they'd inherited it through the power of God. And they knew these things because they had heard them. It had been told them over and over again. They didn't necessarily know them because they were experiencing great blessing in the moment, though. Now, God had chosen Israel. He had displaced the nations that were in the land in a miraculous display of power that left no doubt as to God's regard for Israel. God had ushered Israel into the promised land in fulfillment of promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but he had also brought Israel into the land in order to judge the other nations for their sin. A quote from Genesis 15, verse 16, when God was talking to Abraham, the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its full measure, and so Abraham was promised the land, but he wasn't going to get it for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, until the sin of the Amorites had reached the point where God would say, enough, it's time to move you out as punishment for your sin. This is what Israel knew, and this is what they confessed. Their salvation was from the Lord. It was due entirely to the sovereign work of God. Not by their power, not by their sword, but by God's strength. They knew this, at least intellectually. God had acted for them in the past. They knew the character and the promises of God. God had shown favor to the people of God. But that's what makes the rest of this psalm puzzling. So I'll just leave that there. Let's think about what this might mean for us just in these first three verses. Christian, the story of your salvation is a story of what has been done for you and to you. It is not a story about what you have done. Every one of you here who is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have an amazing story to tell. Now, for some of you, like me, that story doesn't seem all that dramatic, My story, my conversion story, is the kind of story that every parent wants for their child who grows up in the church. One of those guys, I can't even tell you exactly when I became a Christian, right? Uh, Like Nick prayed earlier, um, there wasn't a time where I didn't, I I can't remember a time where I didn't believe that Jesus had died for my sins, because that's just what I had been told my whole life, right? Right? While you were yet a sinner, Jesus Christ died for you. When you were, by nature, an object of God's wrath, Jesus atoned for your sin. Of course, that's the gospel that you hear preached Sunday after Sunday. The true measure of God's justice that ought to guide us in all of our moral reasoning. God doesn't just forgive. He doesn't just forgive but he forgives out of grace by taking the penalty for sin into himself. So Christian, tell the story of what has been done for you. Recite it to the next generation that they might know their inheritance and blessing. More importantly, recite it to yourself. Recite it to yourself and to each other so that it will anchor your soul. Come what may, Christian, you know God has loved you, and he has taken care of your most pressing problem at great cost to himself. He loves you. He loves you. He can be trusted to carry you through to the end. Let's look at paragraph two. If salvation is of the Lord, if salvation is is of the Lord, then Israel would continue to believe. Israel would continue to believe. Look at verses four through eight. All right, what did this mean for Israel? This was a statement of faith and resolve. In light of what God had done for Israel in the past, they would continue to believe in the Lord, and they would trust him to grant victories. They had always and would continue to rely on God to give them victories. That's at least what they're confessing here. Now, notice there is no sense by the psalmist that arrogance has replaced dependence. That's, that's not, I don't think we can say that. They, they knew that in the past it was entirely God. The psalmist recognized that even now then, or at the time of the writing, that was the case. So it's a statement of faith. Israel knew from whom their help came. They knew that they were completely dependent upon the Lord. Even their victories were not merely because God had happened to be stronger, like God was the toughest God on the block. That wasn't it. But because God had ordained them. He had ordained them, and then he had executed his plan. God was truly sovereign. So the question then in this psalm is, well, was that only in the past? Was it only in the past that this was true? But at least at this point in the psalm, the result is that they were going to rightly praise and glorify the God of Israel. They would boast and they would praise the Lord. What does this mean for us? Well, we need to trust that God is, and he forever will be. God is the immutable one. He's the immutable one. Immutable means he's changeless, changeless, changeless in character and in nature. Christian, do you you trust in your own self-sufficiency? How quick are you to pray for the small stuff in your life? You pray for the big stuff in your life, right? But you pray for the small things in your life as well. I, I remember when um, my wife was pregnant with, with our children and there was this sense of utter helplessness. Like the only thing that I could do was pray, right? And, and try to take care of my wife as best we could, but, but you, know, you feel totally helpless, right? And so you pray, and, and and then the baby's born, and you realize, I'm just as helpless right now as I was <laughs> before, right? I have to I have to pray. Uh, this this really all depends upon God. I, I I have to be as faithful as I can, but it really depends upon God. We have to resolve, though, not merely to pray but also to praise. That's that's what we see Israel doing in this psalm. When things things are going poorly, is your impulse to complain, to despair, or is it to praise? Is, Is praise the ultimate demonstration of trust in the midst of trials? Think about yourself when you're going through something what what is your impulse what is your impulse is it to complain or can you begin to turn where israel was at least at this point in the psalm things are going tough i'm going to praise i'm going to praise look at paragraph three the next stanza goes on for eight verses What we'll find here is the hand that blessed is now the hand that curses. The hand that blessed was the hand that cursed. Look at verses 9 through 16. But you have rejected us and disgraced us, have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nation, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Israel has just had this great statement of resolve, right, in in verses 1 through 8. We will trust in the Lord. And then there's this but in verse 9. And it is ominous, isn't it? Things are not as they should be. The hand of blessing apparently has been removed and it's been replaced with a hand of cursing. And, And notice here that the psalmist doesn't ever question God's sovereignty. He's just as sovereign as he was when he was removing obstacles from us. He's just, just as, as sovereign now as then. There's, there is no sense in this psalm that things are spinning out of control. Everything, according to the psalmist, is happening because the Lord is behind it. Notice the you that dominates in verses nine through 14, right? You have rejected us. You have made us turn back. You have made us like sheep. You have sold your people. You have made us the taunt. You have made us a byword. It is all, apparently, every single wretched detail from the hand of the Lord. And whereas before they had conquered through the Lord, now they were conquered by the Lord. And it hurt. It hurt, right? You can, you can feel the shame and disgrace that they feel. They feel every single taunt from their enemies like it's a knife being stuck between their ribs and twisted. It hurts. And what's going on? What's going on? God's God's people are suffering, and it made no sense to them. And again, they weren't questioning the sovereignty of God, but they don't understand why. God, what are you doing? That's more what they're asking. It's not, what is happening? You know, like the world is spinning out of control. It's, God, what are you doing? What are you doing And here's why it made no sense. Look at the next stanza, paragraph four. Israel was suffering because of their faithfulness. Look at verses 17 through 22. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign god, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Israel has has truly confessed that God is sovereign, and now they are saying, we have not been faithless. They have not broken the covenant. The evil that has befallen them, it was not a covenantal curse. They were absolutely not getting what they had deserved. It was in spite of their faithfulness, not because of their faithlessness that the judgment of God had fallen upon them. And again and again in these verses, they plead their innocence. They, they knew they couldn't fool God, that if they had been faithless, it would have been understood as such by God. And they, I mean, they know they can't hide from God. They're not even trying to. And they're confident in their assertion. They were adamant. We have not been faithless. Now, I know as you read this and as you hear this, you're thinking, oh, come on. Come on. We know, Israel, that you were faithless. We know that. We know. We've read the Old Testament, right? They, they totally botched the covenant, didn't they? They got what they deserved. What goes around comes around. And it was coming around to them. So just stop it with your bogus pleas of innocence. Just stop it. Because I've, I've read the Old Testament, right? I know it's nonsense. And, and, and uh, it, okay, admit it. Admit it. You're thinking that, right? <laughs> You're totally thinking that. Be, be, I, I do whenever I read that. And you know who I sound like when I think that way? Job's friends. I sound just like Job's friends. Good guys or bad guys? All right. We might not know exactly why they're bad guys, but we know they're bad guys, right? <laughs> we know they're bad guys. We sound like Job's friends. Oh, come on. The universe makes sense. The reason that bad things are happening to you is because you did bad. You're getting out what you put in. If you'd been faithful, then God would have continued to be faithful to you. But you were faithless, and now you're paying the price for it. Well, what does that say about the inspiration of scripture? Right? They're pleading by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're pleading their innocence before God. Now, I'm not saying that they weren't faithless to the covenant. We have a whole Old Testament that shows that, right? But in this moment, in this psalm, they're going through something that is inexplicable to them, and they are pleading their innocence. And they are, I would argue, they are inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so in this moment. And that's what makes this psalm so helpful for us. Furthermore, you might have noticed in verse 22 that Paul quotes that verse in Romans 8 when he writes, who can separate us? He's talking about Christians, but himself, especially as an apostle. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... Psalm 44, verse 22. Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he goes on No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul, as an apostle, was being crushed entirely because he was faithful. He was faithful. And, and, and we can't say that things have gone out of control because Israel, in this psalm, they'd already confessed that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. So they knew and they confessed their suffering was coming from the hand of God. All right, so that's what it meant. Here's what it means for, for us. Bad things are going to happen to us. Bad things are gonna to happen to us. We might even say bad things will happen especially to us because we are the people of God. Now, that should come as no surprise, because Jesus warned us about that, didn't he? He said to his apostles in the upper room discourse, you will have suffering in this world, but be courageous, I have conquered the world. He he gave this (laughs) prosperity gospel invitation. If anyone wants to follow after me, Let him deny himself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you want to follow me, die to self. Die to self. It wasn't just Jesus, though. His apostles were listening as well. Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 22. It is necessary to go through many hardships in order to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus and the apostles, they warned that suffering would come to those who follow him. This is what we sign up for when we place our faith in Jesus. That's a really, that's, um, there's lots of cool things about Jesus. This is one cool thing. He's not a bait and switch guy. He, he, he doesn't promise you your best life now and then, gotcha, sucker. Right? <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He wants you to go in with your eyes wide open. He, it's not your best life now. It's certainly your best life then, right, one day. He doesn't promise you it's gonna be easy. He promises you it's going to be worth it, and he promises you that he will never, ever leave you. He promises that I have gone through everything you will go through, and I have walked out the other side, and now I'm coming back to walk with you through it. That's the promise of Jesus. Now, Jesus and the apostles warned us suffering would come to those who follow him. Why? Now, sometimes it's a really easy answer why suffering comes to Christians. Maybe it's because we did do something faithless, foolish, or stupid, or disobedient, right? Maybe it's that. Maybe it's because the world, the flesh, and the devil are just after us. And Satan is a murderer and a liar. So maybe it could be that. In a moment, I'm going to give you seven seven reasons why Christians suffer. Um, But before I do that, what kind of suffering would be in view here? Like, what kind of suffering am I I going to be talking about? Any and every kind. Any and every kind. Uh, Listen to the kind of suffering that the Apostle Paul went through. He says, five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. From the Jews. That's like legalese for beaten within an inch of your life and then stopping, right? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers to the city, dangers in the way. It's like danger, Will Robinson, danger, right? (laughs) Danger, Um, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing not to mention other things. There is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not turn from indignation? If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. Now, I I ran through that litany of things because Paul lists everything from a religious persecution that we would expect an apostle to go through, right? Right? to hunger, and just the daily stresses of pastoral care, the daily stresses of loving someone. All of these things fall within the purview of the suffering that Christians go through for Christ. So, what about you? I know that some of you are undergoing what we could call persecution for the faith, maybe not being stoned or lashed, like Paul, you know, the lashes Paul received, but the injustices, however relatively small, they still hurt. Some of you are facing frustrating illness. Some of you are facing economic hardship. Some of you are dealing with family issues that are devastating and just deeply discouraging. Some of you are in relationships that have been very disappointing, if not abusive. Some of you are frustrated because you're not in a relationship than you wish that you were. For whatever reason, God hasn't answered your prayer as you desire. If Psalm 44 is correct, then all of these things hurt. All of them are controlled by a sovereign God. And because you are a Christian, there is more than simple cause and effect at work here. More than that, your response to all of these things matters. But that still doesn't answer the question of why. And so I want to give you seven reasons why Christians suffer. It's not an exhaustive list. You might, Why do I have seven? Because I had more than three. I didn't want to end on six, and I couldn't think of 12. So... <laughs> Um, I had to keep this Christian. Um, now, please, please note that I am not trying to put a happy face on anything, and I'm not, I am definitely not trying to explain away suffering. I would never want to do that. Um, I think, and so if, if you write down one thing here, evil... Evil is to be protested and fought against. It is not to be rationalized away. Evil is to be protested and it is to be fought against. I remember um, about three years ago when, when my wife was diagnosed with cancer, I shot a text off to my friend and colleague, Gary Bashirs, and his, his two-word response was very profound to me. It was just, I protest. Because it was wrong. It was wrong. Um, things like this are not supposed to happen, right? And, and and it hurt, and and it was significant that here my theologian friend just said, "This is wrong, it's evil, and I protest." And I protest. That doesn't that doesn't mean anything as far as God's sovereign control over it, right? I'm I'm, I'm not denying that. So, as we go through these reasons, they're not rationalizations. Suffering is suffering, and it hurts, and 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 at and at some significant level, it is wrong. It is wrong. But here are seven reasons why suffering comes to Christians. The first one, to hurt Jesus. To hurt Jesus. This would be religious persecution. Um, The world and the devil, they hate Jesus. Therefore, as Jesus promised, the world and the devil hate you. The world and the devil hate you. And they will do everything that they can to hurt you. Why? Because they know the best way to hurt Jesus is to hurt you. They, they've done their worst to Jesus, and he came out the other side. But he feels everything that hits you. He feels everything that hits you. The enemy knows that what hurts Jesus, what hurts Jesus' people, hurts him. So, in in suffering, there's almost always more going on, though, even when it is demonically executed. So, I'm going to move on from that one. Let's go to number two. And this is also one that that you would be very familiar with, uh, to discipline the children of the Lord. Listen to the words of the book of Hebrews. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there, the father does not discipline. But if you're without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay, so, so this is another obvious reason why Christians suffer. It has a lot to do with our expectations of getting what we deserve. You do bad things, bad things happen to you. But it's not exactly the same thing because the discipline, discipline of the Lord is not a bad thing. It is specifically tailored to deal with each one of us where we are and the Lord's gracious hand is guiding it all. It's always good and loving, as this passage makes clear. It comes from God's personal hand, not an impersonal hand. It leads us to the next reason why Christians might suffer. Third, to sanctify us, to sanctify us. Here's the words of James 1. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effects, that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Here the suffering is from the same hand, but it's not first and foremost corrective. It's to build you up. It's to train you. Sometimes, apparently, suffering is introduced into our lives that is not the response to a wrong that we did, but is directed by God in order to grow us up. It would be more like a a coach training us with difficult exercises to build us up. Uh, the, The great coach Tom Landry said, it's the job of a coach to make you do what you don't want to do so you can become what you've always wanted to be. That's what God is doing here. That doesn't make the suffering more pleasant, certainly, but there's a category of the Lord doing this, and James instructs us to maintain the right perspective in the midst of it. It stinks to go through it, but we know that God is doing something wonderful, so I'm going to be grateful not for the suffering, but for what God is doing in the midst of it. Again, we never call evil good. We never call evil good. But we sh- it should result in joy and thanksgiving as we consider the awesome work that God is doing in our lives, transforming us into Christ-likeness. Okay, so there's three things, but that doesn't explain all of suffering. There's more. The Bible says more about this. Number four, to glorify God, to glorify God. And, and, and this is a hard one too. This is a hard one too. Do um, you remember the story... From the Gospel of John, chapter 9, where the disciples come upon a man who had been born blind, so blind from birth, blind his entire life, and he's a young adult now. We know that because we're told later that he is of age to give testimony for himself. And his disciples want to know, so they ask the question. This is a time, you know, theology with Jesus. Here's an opportunity. Who sinned that caused this man's blindness, him or his parents. Now, what are they saying? Hashtag karma, right? Because we all know that what goes around comes around. So who did the going around that, that came around for this man to be born, born blind? That's what they're asking, isn't it? And notice Jesus' response. He said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We go, oh. So we read this passage. We read John nine, and it takes like no time to read that story. And it's a great story, isn't it? Because it's, it's one of the greatest stories in all of the book of John, because here's this man who's been born blind. Jesus heals well, first he does some theology lessons for his disciples, right? gives them a radically different category for suffering. And then because there's, there's always a happy ending to the good stories, right? He heals the man. But, and then the man gives awesome testimony, right? Uh, the, he, he goes up against the Pharisees. He's threatened with expulsion from the synagogue. And, he's, and, and he says, boy, well, you know, one thing I know, once I was blind, but now I can see, All right? And we think, oh, that lucky man. I wish I could have been that guy to give such awesome testimony to Jesus. And we read that passage in less time than it takes us to drink a cup of coffee, not realizing that that man had been born blind and he had suffered every single day of his life. Every day of his life. Begging on the streets. We know he had a totally dysfunctional relationship with his parents who are not exactly paragons of compassion, right? As we read that story. And then he gives awesome testimony to Jesus. And what happens? He gets kicked out of Jewish life. The suffering doesn't end when he was healed. Man, that was awesome as I drink my coffee. I wish I could give awesome testimony like that to Jesus. Man, my latte's too cool. Get, get, get over here and do something with this, right? That's, that's how we roll. That's how we roll. This man suffered daily his entire life. And it doesn't make it untrue that what he went through was going to bring incredible glory to Jesus. Because it did. And, and I suppose that today, in the presence of Christ, in the presence of Christ today, he is like, it was all worth it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. But in the moment, it was hard. It was hard. Just remember that his suffering was probably as puzzling to him as it was to his disciples. He was probably asking the same question day after day. What did my parents do? What did I do? Who, wh- why has this come upon me? Christian, it can be simultaneously true that your suffering is brutal and that you should be the object of compassion and that you are appointed for such a thing so that Christ can be glorified in you. I, I, I did the whole thing about emphasizing the suffering that he went through because I want you to realize that it was hard. It was really hard what he went through. But it was true that he gave great glory to Jesus, great glory to God. And we have been blessed by it, haven't we? Every time we read John 9. In this case, God was glorified when he brought the man out of his suffering. And he can do that for you. And he absolutely does do that. And we should thank the Lord whenever he does. God is routinely praised in the Bible for his role as Savior, and part of what he saves us from is the affliction that we undergo, even when, especially when, that affliction is ordained by God himself. Reason five, to experience the comfort of God and to enable ministry. I think this one's fairly obvious too, and you've probably been the recipients of this. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the suffering, so you will also share in the comfort. The passage goes on to suggest that God is even praised when he delivers us and that our suffering can even promote prayer by the body on our behalf. And I'm sure that you know this to be true. You've seen this in your own life and in the lives of others. You, you've, you've been the recipient of comfort when going through a trial and that enables you to minister better to other people who are suffering. I, 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 I pray that that has been the case. I think that's a fairly easy one to, to consider. God is raising you up, training you to be a vessel of grace to someone else. And maybe there's some perspective in that as well. Why am I going through this so that I can help other people go through this same sort of thing? Number six, to experience the power and love of Christ. Here's the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians 12. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong." Recall in the psalm, Israel knew that the battle belonged to the Lord. Struggling, which makes people feel weak and helpless, is an opportunity for us to see the power of the Lord at work in us. It, it clarifies things for us, right? Because when things are going good, we get filled with our own sense of self-sufficiency until things are bad, and, and it's like reality check. <laughs> reality check. I'm not as in control as what I thought. God is calling me back to himself. He's giving me a right perspective. I'm miserable right now and I am totally dependent on God and if I were thinking rightly, I would realize that's the way that it always is, always ought to be. We're always completely dependent upon the Lord. The only question is, do we recognize it? God allows suffering into our lives to give us that kind of clarity. And finally, number seven. And this last reason is probably what Psalm 44 is really about, and it's the most complicated. To fill up the sufferings of Christ. Paul wrote in Colossians 1, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. That is the church. I think, what on earth could that mean? Uh, Jesus' atoning work is sufficient for all, we add nothing to it. We bring nothing to the table, right? I mean, we know that, that's Christian Confession 101, right? So what could Paul be saying here? I'm, I'm adding, I'm, I'm filling up, completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What could that be? If you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, you need to know that your only hope is, is placing your trust in the one who died on your behalf, only he can reconcile you to God. You can't do that on your your own. Only Jesus can do that. So what's Paul talking about here, about completing, filling up the, the afflictions? Well, maybe Revelation 6 can give us some insight into this. This is a very strange passage where John gets a vision of these disembodied souls who had been martyred for their confession of Christ and they're around the throne and they're calling out to God and they cried out with a loud voice Lord the one who is holy and true how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood so they were each given a little or a white robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been John gets this picture of all of these Christians who had been martyred, or from who will be martyred, right? And and they're around the throne, going, "Lord, when are you going to avenge us?" And the divine response is, "Not yet, because there's more of you to come, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting." It appears that in God's economy, there is a certain amount of persecution that God intends his people to suffer for his name's sake. And we might think, why? Why? I mean, and, and, and I, I don't, <laughs> it's kind of a bummer. I wish I could tell you. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I can throw some ideas out there for you, though. I think that evil is exposed as truly evil when it lashes out at God through his people. And the mercy, justice, love and holiness of God are all magnified in that suffering. Old Testament Israel understood that they played a role of vicarious suffering for the nations. You read that all through the Old Testament. They, they understood they were suffering for the world. Now, God's people will always be asked to do such things. What Israel didn't understand is that the role that they thought they played as a nation could only be fulfilled by one who was perfect that Israel as a collective sinful whole could never actually fulfill. But even now in God's economy, he has given us the inestimable privilege of suffering for the cause of Christ. And maybe suffering for Christ is just being alive in this world as a Christian and enduring all that the world, the flesh, and the devil can throw at us. Enduring what the brokenness of sin brings with it. Remember when Jesus' apostles were persecuted and they went away rejoicing and thanking God that they were found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And, we, and, and what I would like to tell you is that I don't think that has to be just religious persecution but it could be just living faithfully before God in this broken world that is cursed and ravaged by sin. And you as an adopted child of God, you undergo that suffering and God has you and he cares. And he has ordained this, perhaps so that evil can be exposed as evil and your faithfulness in response to his faithfulness can shine brightly. Here's what I know for sure. God will never ever be your debtor. He will never ever be your debtor. He is keeping score. We should close. Paragraph five. Therefore, make your appeal to God. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Given everything that the psalmist had confessed up to this point, it only makes sense to call out to the Lord for deliverance. We noticed that Israel, they didn't blame God. They didn't question his character or his attributes, but they did alert him to their lived experience. They were suffering, and it was miserable. They didn't thank him for their suffering. We should not thank the Lord for suffering per se, but we should thank the Lord for what he is doing in the midst of our trials. We're never called to call evil good, on the contrary, we call evil for what it is, evil. And we protest it, we fight against it. And our primary means, not our only, but our primary means of fighting against evil is to pray against it. And that's what Israel does here. They go to the Lord and they appeal to one of the many things that they knew about God. God is loving and his, 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 the, the, the word in Hebrew is his chesed, his, his covenant love, his loyal love. It's powerful, it's faithful. Well, we should do likewise. Recall the Lord's kindness to us in our salvation and in our adoption. Recall his promises, meditate on his character, pray with fervency that he might deliver you and all of his people. And and know this, just as the writer of Psalm 44 knew, your response matters. It matters more than you can imagine. Job's faithfulness reverberated through the heavenlies. I think yours does too. I think yours does too. Every prayer uttered in your weakness is magnified through the heavens and it's loud in the ears of God. Every blow endured by you is personally felt by your Lord. Every tear shed is precious to God. He keeps every single one of them. He is keeping score. He will not be your debtor. And the God who raised Jesus from the dead is able to make you stand to the end. We know this because in the end, Jesus Christ will be vindicated and he will be proven just and right and for us who are in Christ, when he is vindicated, we will be too, amen? Amen, let me pray. Our Father in heaven, um, we've, we've delved into things that, that are, are, are too awesome, in many ways too wonderful for, for us to uh, fully uh, comprehend, but, but, but you have given us your word and you have given us some insight and we pray, Father, that, that you would use your word now to enable our endurance. Uh, that th- Through your spirit, you would keep us faithful. More than that, you would keep us hopeful. Hopeful in the midst of trials. It's our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.